Welcome to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. In this episode, Alex Kreshmar is on to talk about TailScale, a universal VPN that connects teams, devices, development environments, Kubernetes clusters, everything for easy access to remote resources. My co-host, Nirmal Mehta, is off this week. So Alex and I get some alone time to talk about projects he's worked on in containers over the years, and then we quickly get into TailScale and talking why he joined the team there. TailScale, if you haven't heard of it, is one of those tools that's hard to put down. I've used it for years to connect my personal devices when I'm traveling to my home server lab or servers I might have on the internet that I've run temporarily. It connects them all together in a seamless VPN. And the product itself comes up a lot in our Discord server when people are talking about needing some secure remote access to something anywhere in the world. So now TailScale keeps adding more and more features I can't really keep up. So we had Alex on the show to talk about all the new stuff, including a client for Apple TV, which at first I didn't quite understand why, but now it totally makes sense. And a Kubernetes operator that does some slick things around connecting engineers on their local machines to clusters. I found Alex at the TailScale booth at KubeCon this year and invited him on the show because I feel like it was weird that we haven't had a show yet on this relatively new yet ubiquitous feeling product. This is an edited version of our weekly live show that you can join and chat with us on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at brett.live. So please enjoy this episode with Alex Kreshmar. Hello. Welcome to my show. And with me today, we're going to get into some cool tech that surprisingly, amazingly hasn't been on the show before, although it's constantly referenced as a solution for lots of things. Welcome to the show, Alex Kresmar. Hello. Thanks for having me, Brett. Thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and you have a, your hands in a lot of pots. What, what's all yes, going I on? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Day job is at TailScale. I am DevRel over there. I do a bunch of stuff in the evenings too. So I do the self-hosted podcast where we talk about what software you can host yourself almost exclusively out of Docker containers. So I, I think that will fit pretty well with this audience. You know, open source contributor, you know, parent, father, all that kind of stuff too. This is self-hosted show. Correct. So I, I've been doing that show for the last four-ish years with Chris Fisher over on Jupiter Broadcasting of Linux Action Show fame back in the day, if your memories stretch back that far. And it, it's a really fun time. We, we release every two weeks and talk about, yeah, like I say, software you can host yourself, problems you can solve by hosting software yourself without relying on the big, evil, dare I say, corporate cloud providers. <laughs> right. And then you also do the Linux server stuff. It used to, certainly. So a long time ago, I founded a website or co-founded a website, linuxserver.io. Some of you may be familiar in the Docker community with that website. If you've run any sort of media apps on an Unraid server or any other kind of self-hosted thing, you know, they say that scratch your own itch is a good way to build a thing, right? And so back in the day, this is when Docker was pre 1.0, nobody was making containers with decent documentation. And so for me, the idea behind LinuxServer.io was to make a, a suite of containers running apps that we wanted to run, you know, I'm talking about Plex and, you know, all, all those kinds of apps. Yeah. I haven't really been involved in that project for the last four or five years, basically since starting the, the self-hosted podcast, but it is, you know, something that's in my past. 
And the guys over there now do some absolutely fantastic work with the the project and it's in really good hands. It's funded with Open Collective. So if you want to donate to that project now, you, you can do so. And I think they're approaching 20 billion pulls from Docker Hub, which is just bananas. Absolutely bananas. I remember when yeah. we were we were pleased with a thousand pulls on our first <laughs> right. Plex image, you know. You were toasting yeah. at a thousand and very quickly yeah. got out of hand. Yeah. Yeah, and a really nice thing about that project too is it's basically a, a charitable organization. It's an open source organization. It's not a for-profit entity. And as far as I know, nobody in the project, certainly whilst I was there, took a cent from the thing to to line their own pockets or anything. It's just, it's open source in action and it's an area of my life. I mean, I used to work over the years, I've worked at Red Hat before I was at Tailscale and open source is really important to me and, and who I am. And I, th- I think it's it's just great that Linux server is, is where it is, doing what it is and continues to thrive. Yeah. So even though we're not going to talk about it in this show, go check out. I mean, there's like everything you can think of there, I feel like. A very cool resource. There's a lot of, in my Discord server, it Linux server images come up fairly frequently because they're just an easy way to run anything Linux in a container. And sometimes it's the go-to, rather than going and searching Docker Hub, you might go just look up and find a Linux server image that that does that thing. Well, very cool. We knew this when we met each other. We met at KubeCon. So that's what I do at KubeCon is I troll the floor looking for interesting guests to be on the show. And I, I fill the docket for six months until the next KubeCon or DockerCon or whatever. And, it's true. and Alex was there at a booth and we started talking about TailScale. And he was talking about how he has always had it on his, like every computer. He's, he doesn't, you know, he's had it for years since it came out years ago. And he doesn't remember a time where he doesn't have it. I have it in my home environment for accessing stuff my, remotely when I'm not at home and sometimes some internet resources. I've worked with teams that use it and their team for connecting to their resources. So it's not even that old of a project, right? It's not been around forever, but it feels like a kind of thing that most people have have heard about, but I still find people that haven't heard about it. So here we are. Let's talk about it. Yeah, it's the easiest way, in my opinion, to connect two devices together, wherever they happen to be on the planet. You know, if you've got an internet connection, you can use TailScale to connect them together. And, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. But under the hood, you know, the, you mentioned the project being quite new. Two to three years, I think, is just the company has been around. And the reason for that is because underneath, Tailscale is using a, a project called WireGuard, which is an open source VPN protocol. And then Tailscale has built a product on top of that, which utilizes a lot of really interesting features around DNS and authentication. And, you know, there's just, there's a ton of stuff we could get into, but I won't quite yet. Yeah. The preview, right? Yeah. I mean, I, WireGuard, I'm going to date myself a little bit. I feel like that was like a two point something kernel thing. Like it was like maybe 15 or 10 years ago or something like that. I just remember when there was a little bit of a fanfare when WireGuard came out because up until then we didn't really have like wire speed VPNs. Everything was add on and third party. And I felt like WireGuard for Linux was that moment where we were finally getting like an actual API that was kernel aware that we could actually rely on across different Linux distributions. Is that how you remember it? I might not get all those facts straight. Well, if you could believe it, WireGuard was only mainlined into the Linux kernel in March, 2020. Yeah. <laughs> as recent as that. Oh, so and it was a distro, it was a distro add-on kind of thing? Yeah, so it was running in user space before that. And mm. what's made it particularly good nowadays is that it's been mainlined not only into Linux, it's also in BSD as well, is that because it's a kernel module built right into the kernel, the performance is fantastic. Like compare that to OpenVPN yeah. or any of the other, you know, more traditional VPN providers. 
Right. There's a lot of stuff that being in the kernel just gets you for free in terms of performance and security and a bunch of other stuff too. Right. And one of the things I don't think I realized when I was prepping for this conversation is that I still think of my mind hasn't caught up with the current technology. Like I'm still thinking of VPN in a very traditional sense. And I started looking at things that Tailscale does, like the fact that it runs on an iPhone. And I never really even thought about the fact, like, why would I want to run this on my iPhone? And I'm still the person that's like manually installing a client on my Mac through command line. And I run, because I I was the open VPN person, you know, back in the day. So that was the go-to. And then, you know, before that, we were all like in the dark days of PPTP and, Uh, yes. You know, IPsec was super hard to set up, so you couldn't even get that working right. And not, you know, LLTP and like some of these other protocols and names of things that, you know, I was setting up VPNs for the government 20 years ago. And it was at all, it was one of those things where it was all or nothing, right? Like when we think of traditional VPN, I think that's somewhere on the website. When I think of traditional VPN, I think of you're a client and you're remote. And when you connect, you get access to the entire thing. You get the whole enterprise network as if you were plugged in on that physical network. There's no granularity. At best, you have a security person that's maybe limiting subnets to your VPN or whatever. And the only tr- real like choice you have in terms of control is whether or not that's your default gateway. And I always remember that was always a big sticking point at enterprises was, did they or did they not want you running all of your traffic through their VPN connection to their headquarters or wherever it was, and then back out onto the internet. And it was weird that we had strong opinions on both sides from all security people. Like some security people were like, you have to tunnel all your traffic. We keep it safe. We have proxies in the middle. We keep you safe that way. And other ones were like, no, we don't want that traffic. We don't want you killing our internet for your VPN traffic coming in. And we want to split that connection or whatever that's called. But I feel like everything's changed now. And yeah. the, we're talking about device to device connections. Is that kind of where Tailscale came into the? Yep. Every, every connection between every device is peer to peer as yeah. as far as possible. So Tailscale does some magic called NAT traversal. So it, essentially every IP address that you get on your LAN is a, a 192.168 type address. You know, there are other local ranges reserved, but let's go with that one because it's the most common. That's not a public IP address, so it's not routable across the public internet. So if you wanted to SSH into a server, for example, it's in under your desk, say, and you are at the coffee shop and you've got all you've got in your pocket is your phone because you've had an alert to say that some critical system of yours is down, you know, Plex or whatever is down and you want to fix it, right? Typically, you'd have to fire up OpenVPN and then make sure you've got the correct SSH keys installed and you've got the correct permissions and yada, yada, yada. Well, because Tailscale is a peer-to-peer connection, you can actually use the reuse the Tailscale network authentication as part of Tailscale SSH to make SSH keys disappear. Like as long as you're on your tailnet and your node is approved in your granular list of rules, what we call the access control list, the ACLs, you can just SSH into that node as if you were had gone through the process of setting up the SSH keys and doing all that other stuff yourself as well. And there's no port forwarding. There's no you know setup really required other than just tail scale set dash dash SSH on that remote node. And then once it's done, you get a little thing that comes up in your control panel that says, hey, you have these nodes listed in your account. You can refer to them by name instead of IP address. Yeah, it's just one of those things that, you know, typically to switch to a new VPN would have taken 
an entire weekend to do. And I actually remember the first time I, this was before I worked at Tailscale. I was like, right, I've been using WireGuard itself on OpenSense to connect, because like, I have some servers in England and I have some servers here in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I live. And it's kind of funny to me that I spent all this time working on self-hosted like WireGuard implementation. So I thought switching to Tailscale was going to be this big ordeal. So I set aside this whole weekend to do it. And it, I was done in like half an hour. It, it's honestly, it's kind of bonkers. And we, it sounds like such a, a sales pitch to say something like that, but it's genuinely true. Give, and if you give it a go and find that you install it on your phone and your server and you can SSH between the two, no matter where you are in the world without opening any ports in your firewall within like five minutes, you're like, yeah, well, well, that was easy. It's almost too easy and too boring. You, you, you just kind of feel like there must be some magic going on under the hood or something that you don't understand, but right. it's all open source code pretty much. And uh, the clients at least are open source. Some of the control server stuff is closed source because obviously that's Telscale's intellectual property, but we don't actually let any user data traverse our infrastructure that is unencrypted. So we can't see any of the data that traverses between those devices. Mm. So I mentioned it's a peer-to-peer -peer connection. Obviously, that's pretty cool because all the traffic basically doesn't touch our network. Um, but for those cases where NAT traversal doesn't work for some reason, we can't establish that direct peer-to-peer -peer connection. We do proxy some stuff through a DERP server, which is like part of our infrastructure that runs in the cloud. Again, that's all end-to-end -end encrypted and we can't see any of it between those devices. But it means that pretty much no matter what your network situation is, all of your devices remain on your tailnet. And it's basically like having a flat network across multiple different sites and multiple different devices. And you know, if you're on Wi-Fi one minute and 5G the next minute, like your phone just doesn't care. All of your DNS stays the same. Everything stays the same. It's, it's kind of magic, actually. So in, your, in this case, this example of you had the servers in multiple locations, is the idea here that we're adding each individual device or each endpoint into Tailscale so we can... Yeah, great question. We, yeah, You, you can I, do that. You can install okay. Tailscale on every single client, and that's what we recommend wherever possible. So we ship clients for Linux, Mac, iOS, Android TV, iPads, right? pretty much. I mean, in fact, I've even been reliably informed that we run pretty well on a robot vacuum. <laughs> Someone rooted their robot vacuum and installed Tailscale on that. So, just to well, give you an I, idea, when I when I remote my when I remote control my vacuum, I want it to be secure. You know, yes, it's very important. Well, I mean, sometimes uh, there's this open source firmware called Valitudo that you can put on some of these robot vacuums, and it's actually just running Linux under the hood. So, you know, it's it's pretty interesting to see that my robo vac over there is just running Ubuntu. <laughs> it's kind of fun. But yeah, we recommend where possible to install Tailscale on every single device that you can so that you get all the advantages of the DNS stuff that happens. Right. And, and the reason for that is because a lot of the processing actually happens on the client itself. So we ship all of the ACL policies and all of the DNS that like each client is running its own DNS server, which includes your phone is running its own DNS server. So it's not like doing a lookup on a remote DNS thing that we're hosting, although right. That's a fallback that happens. Everything's happening on every single client locally. But there are situations where, let's say you've got a, an embedded device like a printer or a washing machine or something like that that you want to access remotely where you can't install Tailscale. Those use cases are getting further and further and fewer bet between as we add more and more clients that we support. But for those devices, we have a thing called subnet routers, which lets you do TCP packet forwarding 
across. So let's say you've got, let's say you've got a Raspberry Pi sat in mm-hmm. your house and you, you think, right, I want to access the printer that's over in that corner. Well, if you turn your Raspberry Pi into a subnet router, you can actually access that printer on its local LAN, like 192.168 IP address right. via the Raspberry Pi over your tailnet from any other device on your tailnet. So, you know, this actually for me is fantastically useful when I'm trying to help my parents, you know, remotely do tech support and stuff like that. Right. You know, they don't have TailScale installed on their laptop yet. I, I am working <laughs> on that. But, you know, sometimes like I don't want to have to rely on TeamViewer or some of these other remote situations. And right. you know, for me, I just set up a subnet router on the OpenSense firewall and I've got access to all of the devices on their LAN whenever I'm on my tailnet. So, what that means is I can set up a, you know, like a pie hole in their house or something that runs right. all the time. So e- even if Tailscale isn't involved, they've still got some cool stuff like ad blocking and stuff locally. And then when I want to route my traffic out through that node, I can use a subnet router or use that node also as an exit node and take all the traffic from my local device and proxy it out through that remote node as well. So remember when I said at the start, there was a lot to get into. We're going to go down this rabbit hole because this is an engineering show. Like... This is not the hand wavy stuff. I, I mean, anytime we get a network diagram, I get excited in here. So in that scenario, am I accessing those devices by their, their 192.168 IP? I'm assuming I lose like the DNS abilities and some of the other stuff if I'm routing in that example type to the, the Raspberry Pi. Well, so it, yeah, if the, so there's a, there's a few use cases, right? So if, if the, the printer for this example wanted to connect to a device over the tail net, it wouldn't be able to do that. It right. wouldn't be able, it wouldn't have the, the routes needed to know the how gateway, to, yeah. to, route, to route that traffic. But if I wanted to connect to that printer from any other device on the tailnet, I connect to it using the 192.168 address of the remote LAN. So then that means your local computer. So if I'm on my Mac and I'm doing that, that mm-hmm. means that Tailscale on my computer is actually setting up routes for that 192.168 subnet so that I can get to it from my local machine. And yep. that's honestly some of the hardest parts. Like when we think of traditional VPNs, and especially if you're talking about a company or, you know, you have rem- many remote offices and you have, now we have a bunch of different cloud VPNs and, or cloud VLANs or whatever you want to call them, VPCs or whatever the cloud names that thing. They're all just a bunch of VLANs and they all have their own subnets. And like keeping that subnet table used to be like someone's job back. Yeah. I remember that we I had like a network guy and he was like, one of his responsibilities was anytime we needed a new the VPN needed to be able to route to a new subnet because there's a new remote office or some new stuff in the in this cloud over here. They have to add it manually to the VPN client software. And then we'd have to make sure that everyone got updated for their local route tables. So we'd have to actually push changes. And now we can just install a single piece of software. None of that, none of that matters anymore. I mean, it just kind of happens. And, you know, it's kind of like you and I, we were talking before the show about, you know, the good old days. And I didn't go far enough back to mention the fact, you know, that when I first started my job in IT in the nineties, like we DHCP wasn't even a thing. We, we didn't have that. It was a luxury. (laughs) So, so, you know, spreadsheets with IP addresses was a real thing. And, and as we're talking through this, my little, my GitHub account on Tailscale where, you know, I've got some outdated stuff and, but these are just like random machines in my house. And if I remember correctly, you can... Like it's, I, I can't remember what the licensing is, or the, but it's like for one person, like a hundred devices or whatever is completely free or something. That's what I thought I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Happy and, to talk through that. So the, the pricing structure is 
we we are as generous as we can possibly be with it without basically giving it away for free to everybody. So th- up to three users, so three seats, if you want to think of it like that, and 100 devices for free. And then we have some tiers above that, obviously, you know, enterprises eventually where the rubber meets the road in terms of, of cost and stuff like that. But pretty much the free product does 95 plus percent of everything that the higher right. tiers do. And I would say I, my use case is, is pretty advanced, right? I've got I've got a site here in Raleigh. I've got a, two sites in England that I manage, one with this Synology in it that I do remote backups to, and another one with a, a ZFS-based Linux server that I do remote backups to as well. So I've got three sites in my tail scale and something like 45 or 50 different devices in my tail net. And I'm, you know, <laughs> bear in mind, it's my job. I think I probably do more than the average person with it. And I'm still yeah. nowhere near approaching the limits of the free tier, you know? Right. There's a lot there. And it makes it really easy to talk about in podcasts because people are like, oh yeah, what's the catch? And I'm like, well, there isn't one really. You just, you know, you just use it and keep using it. And eventually yeah. we, eventually the hope is you'll see enough utility in it that you think, oh, this is pretty cool. Maybe I should bring this to work. Maybe we could replace some of our more traditional VPN infrastructure with this kind of stuff, you know, make the network team's job easier because we've all been in that situation where we've opened a ticket with a firewall guy and he's... You come back to you a couple of days later. I guess it, it some for some reason takes two or three days sometimes to change a firewall yep. rule. <laughs> yep. And then they do the wrong, you know, target subnet or whatever it is. And you're like, no, I need it to be this way. And with Tailscale, it's all self-serve because, you know, if you go to the access controls tab, we've got a bunch of the policy stuff that will let you define a bunch of rules about who can do what and who can see what and different tags and you know, your policy file here is basically the standard default thing that default, we offer. Yeah. yeah. But what you can do in this file is you could say that Brett is allowed to SSH to certain servers as a specific username, or you're allowed to connect to certain nodes over a certain protocol or a certain port or from a certain source IP or whatever that may well be. And it's basically like software defined networking type situation that you get into here. But this policy file basically makes itself serve. So you can actually put this policy file into a Git repo and then have some kind of CI server monitor that repo and go through the whole pull request, merge request dance. You can see at the bottom right hand corner there, you've got yeah. a Git ops section, which lets you, you know, manage this thing programmatically as as infrastructure as code. And that's kind of the dream, right? Yeah. Well as someone who teaches a Git ops class for Kubernetes, as soon as I saw this the other day, I was like, yes, this is how I would do it. If I was going to implement <laughs> this for a team, that's exactly how I would set it up. Because usually the developers don't want to have to talk or, you know, engineers in general. It's just funny. Don't want to talk I, I cut my teeth as a DevOps engineer. So I spent my life trying to build bridges between Dev and Ops. And I think the reality is that so people are just happy in their own camps, you know, and yeah. Yeah, the yeah, less yeah. they have to talk to each other, the better. <laughs> Yeah. And if I can make a PR change and someone just approve it rather than putting in a ticket that then causes someone else to have to make a meeting because right. I didn't get the right info from me. Correct. And yeah, this is actually pretty cool. And the what I think I didn't realize until prepping for this show was how many different ways I can use Tailscale. Like, again, going back to my legacy mindset of I thought about it as host connect to hosts and I get everything on that host, or it's, you know, it's like I connect the host and then I run the tool like SSH or cube control or whatever I need on top of that TCP UDP network connection, essentially. 
But when I was looking through the documentation, I saw that there was all these different scenarios that talked about Kubernetes. What did it say in the docs? It was like a Kubernetes controller, maybe. Yeah, well, we actually, this is why we were at KubeCon, is we actually just released a Kubernetes operator. So this lets you install Tailscale into your Kubernetes clusters. And once Tailscale's in there, obviously you can then access any resource on your Tailnet from your Kubernetes cluster. So we all know that running databases in containers can be tricky sometimes, and that you might want to have that particular resource handled somewhere else in a, a better medium. But connecting the Kubernetes cluster to the database can be tricky, right? You, it might be in a completely different data center, you know? So then you've got to set up some kind of a secure tunnel yourself between the two and then have the correct routing and blah, 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 right? The, the list goes on and on. We all know this. But if it's just another device on your tailnet, it's just a DNS entry. You control access to that DNS entry using an ACL policy rule. And suddenly your Kubernetes cluster has access to a whole bunch of other resources. Like the, the demo that we did at, uh, at KubeCon, I had a GPU running in my gaming desktop just underneath my desk back here that we were running to use, running some stable diffusion stuff on. And a Kubernetes cluster running in DigitalOcean was connecting back to that GPU running in my house behind a firewall with no ports open over the tailnet using that GPU and stable diffusion AI on a container I was running locally on my desktop as part of that Kubernetes cluster. Cool. It, it's just amazing. And uh, we've also all copied around a cube config file, right? On more than one occasion, right? And then we definitely keep that really safe and secure and don't leave that in clear text on our disk. We definitely, we're definitely good stewards of those files, right? Well, one of, one of the nice things about the, the operator from Tailscale for, for Kubernetes is that the authentication piece, because you authenticated on your Tailnet, you can actually reuse that to authenticate to the Kubernetes API server without needing a local kube config file. So just by virtue of being on a specific Tailnet, the Kubernetes cluster will go, hey, this is Alex trying to connect in. Okay, you're allowed to do that, man. You're allowed to do that. Nice. We've got a list of questions. Oh, yeah, let me, let's get let me, to some questions. Let me, let, me get, let me get some of those. I knew we'd get some because a lot of us are in that, you know, the DevOps people are saddled with everything and, you know, getting access to our resources is becoming one of them because this stuff is getting easier. We don't need that dedicated always, unless you're in a very large enterprise, you don't need that dedicated VPN manager. <laughs> like I was talking about earlier, I still have like a little bit of shell shock from the wind. I remember these windows. There was these proprietary Windows files to use the built-in PPTP, L2TP, IPsec stuff in Windows back in like XP days. And you could send out these files to the computers over to group policy, and it would actually give them their VPN connections as a file on the, on the C drive somewhere. And we would send those out to 7,000 computers every time we needed to change something in the VPN. We were always so scared because the minute we did it, it was permanent. And so like if we if we were going to break something, we were going to break it on a thousand computers at a time because we would sort of phase it out. And we got, we got to the point where we were really gun shy. And so there was only a couple of us that had like the solid networking, the solid understanding of and routing of security and ports and all this stuff. And so everyone else just was afraid to touch it because it required so many disciplines in order to be an expert in right. the VPN technology. Uh, the first question was, how was the turkey last week? But that's probably not one that we need to cover. Well, I mean, I, I could tell you a story about how I spatchcocked my turkey and put it on my Kamado 
well red done. egg out the back and had a beautiful mwah, chef's kiss smoked turkey. Wait, but we won't go there. We won't go there. Hold on. You said red egg, not green egg. Yeah, yeah. The Kamado Joe. Yep. The red egg. I don't know about the red egg. Okay, we'll have to have a conversation later. I just talked <laughs> about, I just did a holiday gift guide for all of you that want my holiday recommendations for gifts. Brett.news. You can sign up for the newsletter. Last week's was my gift list and half of it was food stuff. I realized like I'm a geek in the kitchen as much as I'm a geek on this show. So, you know, I eat. got a new griddle. So I had to talk about the griddle and my favorite stuff. Guys got to eat, man. You know, that's, yeah. just, that's just the reality. Somebody's got to be the cook. <laughs> you can't do Postmates every meal. All right. So oh, where was that first question? Was asking about like the difference between tail scale and twin gate, tail scale and, str and strong DM. I don't even know if the... I've never heard of any of these things, so I don't know what they are. TwinGate? Is that a VPN? Yeah, it's it's in the same space. It's a zero trust networking product. I'm not, honestly, an expert on TwinGate, so I don't want to misspeak to anything there, but it's in the same space, but I don't think it solves quite the same problem that we do. Okay. Magic DNS is very nice. I, too, ha again, VPN scars of years gone by, like managing my local host file and changing IP addresses in my local DNS file because I didn't want to have to remember IP addresses on the network. And then, of course, DHCP plays games with you and then you connect remotely. No. And I can remember times where I would be on vacation having to connect in and not basically not having DNS on the network and having to figure out the IP before I could even connect to the thing. And that right. would take me a while. To, well, I do have some, that. some neat tricks with Magic DNS up my sleeve. So you remember I talked about having a, a local DNS server on each site so that my family members get ad blocking, so a pie hole on each site, for example. Well, the Magic DNS function has a feature built in called Split DNS, which you may or may not be familiar with, but essentially what this allows you to do split brain, is split, yeah. Tr yeah, split traffic between different sites based on the URL that's used. So you can use the same domain, so domain.com, you can use the same TLD that's in there, but based on whether it's you know site1.domain.com or site2.domain.com, you can send all of your DNS requests to different DNS servers based on subdomains. So it's a really efficient way to make sure that like if your company has multiple sites, but you still got like local DNS servers in mm. the building of that site or data center or whatever it might be, and you don't want to expose any of those DNS entries to the internet or have them in a publicly routable DNS server like Cloudflare or whatever it might be. Right. You can use the split DNS feature in the magic DNS function to basically say, yeah, here. When I when someone requests a, a domain with that URL in it, send all of the traffic to that DNS server over there. And it's pretty cool. I did a video about it in the spring on my YouTube channel, KTZ Systems. If you're interested, just search Tailscale Magic DNS in YouTube, and I think it's probably one of the top two or three there. Nice. That's something that's clearly I'm not using yet, but the the DNS is something where it, when it works, we don't. it's like we don't think about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's, it's the same with networking in general. Like, it's just, I think that's one of the things about Tailscale really is that it's plumbing, it's infrastructure. When it, when it's doing its job, you shouldn't be thinking about it. It, it just should just be table stakes. Like, connecting every device to every other device is the way the internet should have been, and that's what the promise of IPv6 was back in the day. Right. We haven't yep. seen that be fulfilled because of the fact that IPv4 and NAT and stuff like that has just been so prevalent for so long now. But t Tailscale really is it's like to tr coin a phrase from Silicon Valley, like we're trying to build the new internet the way it should have been from the beginning. You know, Right. We're just not using everyone's phones to process it. 
Yeah, we're not hopefully going to summon the rats with like Pied Piper did either, but uh, there's still time. <laughs> YouTube shows me clips of Silicon Valley about once every other day because it knows that I just I I will watch the same Any foil scenes Mike over and Hodge, over again. Is, I tell you, is up my street, King of the Hill, Silicon Valley, Office Space. Yeah, all fun, all fun stuff. In in our next podcast episode, we'll talk about how King of the Hill's coming back. Yeah. Oh. I don't know. Do we need that? Like the new Futurama reboot wasn't super great. So, well, it is all the original actors except for one that died. But it is all they're yeah. gonna they're gonna just fast forward at twenty years. So the original humor will still be there. And I don't know if the writers are all the same writers. I don't know. But yeah, I I'm, I am ready yeah. and willing to give it a shot. Um, yeah, we'll see how I'm Rusty Shackleford's doing. Huh? What's that? <laughs> we'll see how Rusty Shackleford's aged. <laughs> yeah. Does Tailscale Server manage the key exchange between clients? Absolutely, it does. Yes. And that's one of the magic pieces that I realized I skipped over at the beginning. We were talking about WireGuard and how if you do that manually, you then have to manage installing a key on the server and the client, a bit like SSH, right? Where you have to install PKI key infrastructure and make sure that both sides have the correct part of that puzzle. When you log into a client using Tailscale, one of the things that happens is you talk to our control server, which runs in the cloud. And those keys get exchanged and then pushed down to every other device almost in real time, like less than a second. You could hold your phone, look at your phone, log into your server and see that key exchange happen in, in darn near real time. Mm. It's actually kind of amazing. <laughs> I never get, I put it in all of the YouTube videos that I do for Tailscale. And, you know, the last one was like a 10 minute getting started with Tailscale guide. And I had the phone up on the screen the whole time because I just wanted people to see that when I click a button in the dashboard, like it reflects on my phone in real time. And what's happening is all of those rules are getting pushed down from the cloud and the keys are being exchanged and rotated and managed. And it's just like, I don't have to think about any of that stuff anymore. And it's so nice. It's really nice. Yeah. So you can see it happening on the phone while you're doing it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Next question. Does Tailscale support trunking to connect with someone else's devices? Also using Tailscale. I'm not familiar with what, with what trunking means in this context. Um, yeah, me neither. Maybe that's a networking term that I am yet to learn. But we have a bunch of like collaborative features, so you can share nodes with different people on your Tailnets and stuff like that. But one of the things, like if you've got a, a, a small team of people, typically the use case would be you would have multiple seats on that Tailnet. And we, we talked about the pricing a little bit earlier. So you get three users and 100 devices for free. So if you wanted to go beyond those three users, then there'd probably be some point where you start having to pay to have more seats, that kind of thing. But in terms of connecting to other people's Tailnets, no, it's kind of an isolated thing. And that's kind of the point, right? Is these 100.100 IP addresses, they are actually a carrier grade NAT reserved IP block, much in the same way that 10. Whatever is one nine two one six eight dot whatever's mm. are reserved ranges. That the one hundred range is a carrier grade NAT reserved range. So each device on your tailnet gets its own unique IP address and DNS entry. But you can't talk to anybody else's tailnet devices. You know I can't ping Brett's devices unless he shares out one of his nodes on his tailnet with me, and then I get access to just that node that you permit. So if you were running, for example, I do this with my family, actually, I run an audiobook server on the server in my basement and I wanted to give them access to it without inviting everybody to my tailnet. So I'd have to start paying for lots of users. So I did what's called a shared node. I share out that node in my basement using the share option in the, the Tailscale dashboard. 
I then put the DNS entry into Cloudflare, which is a publicly routable IP address, publicly routable DNS entry with the 100.IP address, so that when they connect to Tailscale using their account, they have access to my shared node and the DNS works because it comes in using that 100.IP address because it's a shared node on onto their Tailnet. So it appears as a device in their admin console, in their admin dashboard, okay. as just, you know, says, Alex has shared this server with you. He is the owner of it and you have permission to access it. Yeah, it's funny. I've never, because I'm scared, I've never clicked this share button. Well, that's what it's doing. Yeah, share this machine with other people by sending them yeah. If you are hosting a service for this live stream that let me submit links to you, for example, like a pay spin or something, and it was only local to you in your house, you could share this node with me and then I'd be able to access it and, and access that web app that's running behind your firewall with no ports or anything like that. Very cool. So th the external users, they do they need a Tailscale account, I guess? They will, yeah. So what they'll do is they'll create their own Tailnet. And then you're sharing this node with their tailnet effectively. Nice. That's pretty This cool. is how we actually do all of our demos at conferences and things like that. We have folks scan a QR code that adds a node that we host and share with them to their account. And then we can actually use the ID headers that come through as part of the web request because they're authenticated on their tailnet to say, hi. So, because you know, it starts off saying, hi, you're a stranger. We don't know who you are on the internet. And then they open their Tailscale account and they've, we've shared the node with them. And then there's some Python code in there that said, looks at the, the web request headers and says, oh, well, you must be Joe Smith. And so when you start thinking about what that enables, you can start to replace things like login flows in basic applications and stuff like that. We reuse some of that authentication parameters for Tailscale SSH and stuff like that. Right. Too, I was going to so. say that sounds like the, yeah, the SSH path. Because I, I also don't do that. That's another thing. I'm not using Tailscale SSH. I do the traditional... I've got it running on the Linux server and I connect to my Tailnet and then I manually start up SSH to get to that machine. Even though that machine has Tailscale on it, I didn't even understand the SSL, SSH part. So, you know, clearly you know, I need to, I, I need to watch your video. The thing is we add, we ship features all the time. Like just a couple of months ago, we added an Apple TV client, for example. And then a couple of weeks after that, we shipped the Kubernetes operator. And, 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 and so it goes on. So like the tail scale that you knew six months ago is, it's almost a completely different product. Yes, the, the core features are there, but we're adding new stuff all the time. And it's, yeah. you know, in DevRel, which is what I spend my life doing, where basically I try and talk to people about what tail scale can do for them is it's kind of exhausting trying to keep up with it because, you know, like it's my job to know all the answers to these questions, but we're just shipping stuff all the time. So I wouldn't feel bad that you're not using the whole product by any stretch because it's you know like i say you probably set it up a few months ago and it's a totally different animal now yeah i'm just scrolling through the docs and i'm realizing like i don't know yeah. what tail drop is i know oh yeah but we didn't even talk about these, half the stuff yeah yeah there's all this great stuff in there that you know and the sad part is there's lots of us that are doing all this stuff the hard way because it's what we've always done we didn't realize that there was easier ways to do it some people call that a hobby brett you know Okay. I just like my old VPN when manually configuring my routes and DNS names. Leave me alone. Uh, okay. So we're kind of saying yes and no. Someone else's devices. That's actually a pretty cool answer with the share. I didn't really realize that was a thing. Any plans or timelines on when one can expect official tail scale client for Microtic? Microtic? I don't even know what that word is. Microtic. Yeah. It's uh, it's like an open Microtic. source. Man what? 
they're, they're a manufacturer of like firewalls and, and, and oh, okay. uh, router um, appliances, that kind of thing. I don't know. They're, they're, somebody talked to me about this once internally because I asked the same question. Like when mm. I started at Aoscar a few months ago, I was like a kid in a candy shop being like, oh, look at all this cool stuff I can start to influence. And I was like, oh, it'd be great if we were on Micritic. And someone gave me a good answer as to why we're not on there yet. But I could certainly follow up with you if you want to reach out to me, alexk at tailscale.com. You can reach out to me and I'll do my best to answer that, that question for you a bit more in detail. And there you go. As always, does this work on Swarm? I don't, I don't see why it wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I did see there is a way to run it through a container. I mean, Tailscale is just a, a Linux package. So if you are the sort of scholar that likes to put everything possible into a container, yes, you can do that with Tailscale. There are some gotchas with like netcap and you know admin permissions and stuff we need to do as we create like ton devices on certain platforms right. and things like that like synology in particular can be a bit problematic although it's one of our largest user bases funnily enough but we do ship an official docker image which you can use as a sidecar to some of your containers so if you wanted to just have a web server running and then route all the traffic through the tailnet only you could do that using a sidecar container and this docker image for example you could also base a new image that you're building on top of this as well. But actually, one of the fun projects I, I started doing for our demo environments this week was using one of the Linux server base images and what's called Docker mod support. So they use the S6 overlay to manage all of the init processes in their containers. Because as we all know, right, if we're being good stewards of containers, you only run one process in a container at a time, right? We don't do multiple processes in a container, right? That's just, that's, that's a bad Ideally. practice. <laughs> But there are certain situations where sometimes certain apps want to, you know, like an all-in-one container, for example, you don't want to run a separate database or whatever. I had such a use case come across my desk this week where we wanted to run a web server, but also connect that web server to a tailnet in a single container so we could instantiate multiple different URLs. Now, I could have run a web server and one of these tailscale sidecars per instance, but that felt a little kludgy. So using the Linux server Docker mod stuff, which there's a link to on tailscale.dev, which is sort of a, one of our skunk works, like internal project things, uh, essentially you can use environment variables to configure any Linux server.io Docker image and install tailscale in that and then use tailscale servant and tailscale funnel to actually advertise those resources on the public internet and to just your tailnet if you want to. It's kind of magic, and there's a, a GitHub repo, which I'll also find a link to, and we'll put in the description or show notes or however yeah. Brent does it. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with Tailscale and Docker, for sure. That sounds a little bit like Inception. Yep. Yeah, so that, yeah, I was going to ask, when we talk, we, we get into some of the internals, we talked about at the beginning about, you know, this runs on WireGuard. WireGuard only recently is now a kernel module built in, I guess, to the default kernel build, I guess, or whatever that's called, merged into main. What happens in a container and what happens when you have an older kernel? Like, is a container running in a user space? I would assume, yeah, it probably would have to, but uh, I don't you know did, the You did mention sure. you have to do dash dash privilege, probably. I didn't actually look at the docs on how to run it in, in Docker. I mean, my assumption is if you ran it in a Docker swarm, it would then have access to the Docker networks that you put that that okay, so there on, is a flag. So. There is a flag TS user space. So this tells me that actually the container is using the Linux kernel networking by default. It's enabled look. If you want to enable user space networking for whatever reason, there is an environment variable for you to go ahead and do that. Enabled by default. Yeah. All right. There you go. There you go. 
people of the internet. Documentation. Yeah. Sometimes it's useful. Sometimes it actually answers the question. And there's a lot of pages here. There's a lot. It's and like if I click all the little arrows, it's going to be a lot. So, so there's a lot of hard work put into that. Is it possible to install Tailscale server in my own hardware and use custom algorithm for key exchange? Forgive me if my question is not relevant. Yeah, te technically, I think what you're probably looking for is head scale, but so that's an open source implementation of the Tailscale control server. We actually sponsor and support that project. In fact, some of the, one of the developers is actually on Tailscale staff, for example. So we actually do embrace that project pretty strongly. You don't get all of the goodness that you get with Tailscale proper with Headscale though. And there's a bunch of stuff that's the Headscale just hasn't implemented that's in the main Tailscale project. Can't remember any specific examples off the top of my head, but just know right. that the experience you'll get with Headscale is not the full Tailscale experience. And it's just because the project is constantly playing catch up with a, yeah. you know, a whole suite of developers adding features all the time. There is not feature parity, which w would make sense. I mean, it's cool that this is an option though. So this is in, in maybe some of those scenarios where they can't, for whatever reason, can't use the the SaaS solution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd be curious to know what th those situations are so that we can look at changing the product to make it so that it does work. Yeah. But yeah, just know that that, that head, head scale exists, you know, it can be useful for some folks. Does that mean you have to use specific clients for that? No, it works with all the Tailscale clients. Hmm. Well, very cool. All right. Well, there you go, people. We're about to wrap this puppy up. I knew this was going to be a great episode because this is such a fundamental thing that a lot of developers don't have a universal solution for that they can just whip out and and, and that it solves 90, you know, the 80-20 rule of like this one easy tool solves 80% of my problems without having to have the added complexity of something like OpenVPN or... Yeah. You know, running some sort of service that requires a separate piece of hardware or whatever. I mean, I, the funny thing is, is when I I hadn't traveled in a while that I needed this stuff since the early spring this year and I hadn't I had let everything just sort of languish. You know, I wasn't, wasn't doing updates or anything. And when I was prepping this week for this, I just was like, I wonder if my stuff still works. And I connected and it was all still there. Everything just worked. And I, I, it just been sitting there for six months because this thing runs in the background on my Linux, my uh, Linux box in the closet. It runs on my wind. I have a windows server that it runs on to get access to a bunch of Hyper-V VMs. Pikachu face. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. My windows service. Yes. I'm that guy. Yeah. I have, I, I am equal all the things. I, I used to have Solaris boxes in there along sitting next to free. Oh, okay. Boxes. We don't discriminate around these parts. Good. I like it. I like it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I had the pizza box, as, as I used to call it, with the Solaris machines. They were like thin and they looked like, like a giant extra large pizza box. They were Those were great machines back in the day. So we already know how to get started. We can go to the website, download the clients for free. I think, is my Mac client installed through the Mac store, I think? I think it Yeah, might. it's on the Mac app store. Yep. Yeah. So, and then of course on the phones, it's through the app stores there. You mentioned... An Apple TV client, which I'm very curious. Does that mean that my Apple TV can access like media servers? Is that why I would use it? Yes, sir. Okay. A couple of reasons you might want to use it. One, one is if you're running a Jellyfin or something like that. Yes, you could connect to that over your telnet using a DNS name rather than an IP address. That's pretty nice. The other thing is that we actually support using the Apple TV as an exit node. So you could put one at your parents' house this holiday season. And this is then a good idea. This is, a, yeah. this is definitely a yeah, good yeah. idea. Well, I mean, 
We don't really promote this as a use case because it's a little bit fishy, but if you want to watch BBC iPlayer like I do, I mean, I emigrated about five years ago. I miss the BBC sometimes, and they're pretty good about blocking IP addresses that come from commercial VPN ranges or even data centers. Like I, I for a long time, had a WireGuard server just running in DigitalOcean in London, and that did the trick. And then eventually they cottoned on to the fact that IPv4 block was a commercial block, not a residential block of IPs. Yeah. And so they blocked it. So I run an exit node at my parents' house, and now I can watch iPlayer to my heart's content. <laughs> so on the Apple TV, does that just run in the background? Is that it, it's like a- yeah. So even if the Apple TV's in standby, yeah, it continues to work. Wow. So it's and like it a feels, is that like a new feature on Apple TV? That sounds amazing. So basically, there's TVOS 17. So it was in September, yeah. I think we added it. Yeah. Okay. I'm an Apple household, so I've got four four Apple TVs. So now I'm like, okay, that's my exit node. Yeah, that's my new exit node. I have one sitting here in the office. It's not doing anything right now, so that's its new job. I'm not going to use the Raspberry Pi anymore. I'm going to move it to Apple TV. And we are working on adding subnet routing to the Apple TV as well. So we talked about subnet routers. At the moment, it doesn't do the subnet routing kind oh, of thing. Oh, right. Okay. I am reliably informed that that might be coming soon. I can't say any more than that, although I've probably said okay. too much. That's pretty slick. Well, all right. You have made a breakthrough by increasing QUIC and UDP throughput over Tailscale. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, one of the one of the reasons we talk so much about being an in-kernel module is for performance reasons. So OpenVPN, bless its heart, is it's just an old way of doing things and mm-hmm. runs in user space, not in the kernel, that kind of thing. And so... As part of chasing that dragon of performance, we started looking at a bunch of other stuff related to how it, how we can improve performance in every single area of the product, not just putting it in the kernel versus user space, but also how we improve performance over UDP. So we have a, a blog post, which I'll link in the show notes or whatever, yeah. where we talk about how we improve the performance of Tailscan and its various clients. Very cool. Is that a plant? Is that a planted question? I don't know who Christos is, so... Yeah, there we go. Right. Well. I don't think every so. Every once in a while. Every once in a while, sometimes companies sneak in a per- person. We had a Reddit thread go pretty hog wild on the self-hosted subreddit to the point where in the comments, people were like, this must be guerrilla marketing. And there's me with my DevRel hat on thinking, God, I wish I could pay for <laughs> coverage this good. You know, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, the, the thing, the same things that drew me to work for Tailscale in the first place are the same things that draw people to start using it. Like it's just, it's one of those products that it shouldn't be this easy. But Tailscale makes it this easy, and it's just like, I want to tell everybody about it. And so that's basically why I do this job now. And then people go into subreddit and do it for me. So, you know. (laughs) Well, you've got some great videos on the internet. You can look at the Tailscale channel on YouTube, and Alex is in there making lots of videos. I, I needed to brush up on my knowledge, so I watched a couple of those before the show today. And I like your production quality, sir. I appreciate you for making the extra 95% effort. the accent, let's be honest. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Sounds <laughs> so much smarter. I think we're going to we're gonna leave it at that. That's a great question. I'm not sure if there's an easy answer to that one. I believe every time the client gets connects with the control server, the client gets a new key, how this client will notify other peers about the new pub key. I'd have to look at the codes to know or, or ask one of our engineers exactly how often the key exchange happens. What I know is that the control server will push that out to other clients to say, right, this public key is now trusted. And that happens every time an update happens. It's a, it just happens automatically in the background. You don't need to do anything. I don't know if that happens on every single connection, but it's certainly like if you look in the admin console, there is an option to disable key expiry. I think by default, they're valid for over a month or three months or mm. something. 
Uh, I forget exactly what it is. And then you can turn off that rotation for certain devices if you want to. But yeah, it's one of those things that is there's no user interaction required. It just rotates by itself. Right. All right. Part I was getting ready to say, just like Swarm, Swarm nodes, they auto-rotate keys. We, I have adopted all the Swarm fans on the internet, and we actually have a bi-monthly meetup now called Swarm Fans on our Discord server. And well, I'm sure still... all seven of you are very happy. <laughs> They'll love that dig. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you, when you don't hear about a, people talking about a community that exists, you assume it doesn't exist. And then when you give it a place and a space, people show up and we've, we didn't even have a, used to have a Swarm channel. I have a Swarm course. I teach Swarm. But we didn't even have a Swarm channel in my Discord because I was like, ah, I just do it in the Discord. I just do it in the Docker channel. It's, it's a part of Docker. And then eventually some of the maintainers showed up and people were like, we want a channel. We deserve a channel. So now we have a channel. We have a monthly meetup. People talk about the new features yeah. that came this year. And, you know, we might get a revival. We might get some sort of renaissance of Well, you know, of Swarm now, now I don't work for Red Hat and I'm not an OpenShift chill anymore. Uh, mm. I can say what I really think about Kubernetes and stuff like that. You know, I, Docker Swarm is one of those things that had such promise to make things actually simple and more accessible for folks. Mm. And then Kubernetes came along like this big 18-wheel freight truck that most people don't need half of what it does or more. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that Kubernetes is way too much for most people most of the time and that Swarm would have served 90% of the use case that people use Kubernetes for just fine. And then for all those other people, you can just go use Kubernetes. That's fine. You know, hyperscalism, all that kind of stuff, you know, right. That's what most people swarm would have been plenty. Yeah. And there was a time where I, you know, I had customers I was putting on it and I was, I was implementing yeah. it everywhere I could because I was, especially when containers were new to teams, I felt like telling them, oh yeah, to use a container, you've also got to learn Kubernetes. It was just a huge lift to expect them to learn Docker, compose, Kubernetes, all the things on top of Kubernetes. And it was just like, no one's ever going to want to do this if I tell them that in order to use containers, they have to do all this stuff. So for years, I was sort of like the champion of like, let's keep Swarm a thing. Now Docker just can't figure out a revenue model for it. So it just kind of sits there in limbo for these years. But can we just agree that money ruins everything? Yeah. 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 Usually. Unless it's my money and then it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. All right, sir. This has been a great hangout. Alex, thank you yeah. so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And we've checked Tailscale off the list. So- What's one thing that's coming new? Do we have like a hot take on anything that's next? You kind of mentioned some things already, like EB yeah. thing and yeah, maybe that's coming new. Of coming, I don't know. Like we've we just we've just shipped an absolute ton of stuff, like a Datadog integration, so you can monitor that. You can monitor your nodes in Datadog without putting the traffic across the internet, for example. Nice. You know, there's tons of stuff all the time. Keep an eye on our blog and the YouTube channel, and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Look for Alex on the internet talking about all the new stuff that he now has signed up to be paid to do. <laughs> yeah. Totally not a corporate shell promise. That's, that's right. I can actually use it all the time in my personal infrastructure too. Yeah. Know? Well, it is kind of cool to have something where it's like, you're, I mean, that's, I never actually technically worked for Docker. I probably should have, but that's how I got here was I was a fan of the product. So I started telling others about it. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, internet. 